For years, we've been taught to get that glucose down, but is it really enough? Some researchers have proven differently. You're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Colagieri from the Bowdoin Institute of Obesity, Nutrition, and Exercise at the University of Sydney in Australia. He's the co-author of a key publication by the International Diabetes Federation, which recently announced new guidelines on postprandial glucose control. He's the author of many books and peer review articles. Today we're discussing treating the serum glucose, is it enough, and also some other information on treatments in the horizon. We're so glad you could be here today with us, Dr. Colagieri. Thank you for taking the time. It's my pleasure. Can you tell us something about the work you've done with the Diabetes Federation in the past and what some of those goals are? Uh, the International Diabetes Federation is an organization of nearly 200 individual organizations throughout the world from about 150 or so countries. And it essentially concentrates on doing high-level things like providing guidance on the treatment of diabetes and also helping to support and uh, increase resources in each of these countries. My main work with the International Diabetes Federation has focused on developing guidelines, mainly for type 2 diabetes, but then more specific guidelines addressing critical questions in diabetes management, such as control of post-meal glucose. Post-meal glucose. What about some of the other work you've been doing with the Diabetes Federation and anything with prevention? I know they're very big on, on prevention of metabolic diseases. Is that true also for diabetes? Uh, the International Diabetes Federation is, of course, very focused on prevention as a very important means of impacting on the diabetes epidemic, and it actually has produced, again, publications and encouraged and involved with diabetes prevention programs uh, throughout the world. And although I'm personally involved in one occurring in Australia, I haven't been specifically involved in other work in prevention around the world. I'm curious, you use the word epidemic. It's certainly in America there's a problem with obesity, and we know obesity can be a risk factor for diabetes. Do you think the numbers worldwide show that it's an epidemic or something that's clearly on the rise? The International Diabetes Federation monitors this closely, and each year, each three years produces a diabetes atlas with updated figures on the extent of the diabetes problem and projections over the coming years and on the last three occasions that it's done this, it's clearly shown that throughout the world there's been an increase in, in diabetes and the projections over the next uh, 20 or so years is that uh, the number of people with diabetes throughout the world will double and we'll end up with nearly approximately 350 million people with, uh, with diabetes. I know the Federation does a lot of work in the laboratory, and that part of that job is bringing the, the results of that research to the bedside, as you did with the work on postprandial glucose control. Can you give us any other instances where the work you're doing is already proving practical in the clinical arena? Well, I've personally been involved with some work in the Pacific Islands and in some other Asia-Pacific countries where we've been trying to assist these developing countries to implement what is known through measures that correspond to the availability of both human material resources, 
So one of the major problems that the IDF, the International Diabetes Federation, uh, faces is trying to help countries which don't have the resources that the United States and Australia take for granted. You know, a lot of the recommendations in the past and even recommendations coming out now are talking about very tight control. How tight is very tight when you talk about control? And can this be implemented practically? Yes, I think it can be implemented practically if one has the, the resources. The levels of glycated hemoglobin that are now recommended are at least 7%, and uh, many organizations, including the International Diabetes Federation, suggest that 6.5% is the level that we should be aiming for. Some of the studies currently underway are even trying to achieve levels of 6%. The issue is not only trying to get to those levels, but do it uh, safely, and that essentially means achieving those levels without producing undue hypoglycemia. In terms of the glucose levels themselves, target fasting glucose levels are 110 milligrams per deciliter or 140 milligrams per deciliter after a meal. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm fortunate to speak today with Dr. Stephen Colajuri from the University of Sydney in Australia, and he's a member of the International Diabetes Federation. We're just discussing why managing the serum glucose level by itself in your patients may not be enough. You know, I have both patients and I have friends who now use that insulin pump, and they kind of feel that they can eat what they want after a certain point and just jack up the pump a little bit or it'll do the work for them. But what, what is the effect of patients who run around with glucoses that are a lot higher than the 140 postprandial that you mentioned when they try to control it this way? Well, I think the pumps for people with type 1 diabetes have been very useful and it has allowed them more flexibility in the past. But the dangers of a high glucose level exist for everybody and if levels are consistently above those targets that we mentioned, then there is the risk of the diabetes-specific complications of eye damage, kidney damage, and neuropathy, and also an increased risk of the large vessel disease, which causes uh, cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke, and may affect the peripheral vessels, which may predispose to amputation. And we talked about postprandial control, and a guideline you suggest it would be 140. What about nighttime control? How important is that? Well, nighttime control uh, is certainly important because for most people it's approximately uh, a third of the day. So what happens in the eight or so hours when people are asleep will influence the overall glycemic control. The other danger, of course, if one pushes too hard is that it's uh, a time of the day that the risk of hypoglycemia increases when one's asleep. So I think that we do make a concerted effort to try and control the glucose levels overnight, but with a little bit of extra caution in relation to how hard we push it to in order to avoid hypoglycemia. You know, on the surface, if you've got a patient who's got, you know, difficult to control glucose with um, levels that swing all over the place, and sometimes it is their fault and sometimes it's not, it could sound kind of discouraging, but there's, there's got to be a positive spin to this this research. I mean, what I'm hearing is sometimes they're on multiple drugs and the, the, the frequent finger sticks, et cetera. We've learned so much about diabetes in the previous years. What's coming up? What's a brighter future for people who persistently have trouble controlling their glucoses? I think we have to admit that controlling diabetes for most people isn't easy, and it does require 
attention to food and exercise quite apart from the medications that, that are often used. But I think the majority of people with paying attention to those details can achieve diabetes control to the point that their risk of complications is quite small. On the positive side, in terms of medications, the number of options, especially for people with type 2 diabetes, has increased in recent times, is continuing to increase with new agents that affect glucose and insulin responses to glucose in a way that we didn't previously have. So we have the GLP-1 analogs, such as Bieta. We have new products such as the DPP-4 inhibitors, which increase endogenous, uh, the body's own GLP-1 which do actually focus on minimizing or reducing the increase in glucose levels that occur after a meal. For people who require insulin, we also have new insulin preparations, both the short and long-acting insulins, which uh, allow us to push harder in terms of achieving the diabetes control that we'd like to achieve while minimizing the risk of hypoglycemia. You know, a lot of our listeners are primary care doctors, whether they're family medicine or internal medicine, and some of the medications that you just mentioned are probably new to them. Can you tell us a little bit of how they work in conjunction or what a schedule might be that allows for some control of postprandial but still gives them something to carry them on throughout the day or throughout the night? Well, these agents that are specifically mentioned are are new. They're mostly used in conjunction with the other more conventional medications which we have such as metformin or sulfonylurea or glitazone. But uh, there are situations where we don't achieve the effect that we want to achieve with those agents and we have to think of, uh, of something else or there are situations in which uh, people are intolerant of those particular more usual medications. And in those instances and especially if monitoring indicates that the problem is related to failure to control the post-meal glucose, then that's when these neuroagents are, uh, become important and another option in terms of trying to achieve the targets that we are aiming for. And just going off the track a little bit, but I'm really fascinated by this, can you tell us what's new in DKA, or management of diabetic ketoacidosis? Are you involved in any work on that? I don't know that there's anything specifically new about the treatment of uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. I mean, fortunately, it is not a common complication of diabetes, uh, type 1 diabetes, but and the situations in which it arises uh, can usually be prevented through education, especially warning people with uh, type 1 diabetes that under no circumstances, even if they're ill and vomiting, should they emit their, their insulin. I think that we have better recognition of the problem, or especially the early stages, we can implement over-the-phone care in, in somebody who starts to get in that situation by administering more frequent injections of quick-acting insulin in order to avert the problem. But if it does develop and people uh, present to, uh, to a hospital, then uh, usually there's a greater awareness of the problem and more immediate and effective treatment. You know, relatively recently, inhaled insulin's been on the market. Have we had any success with that? I think overall, the promise of the inhaled insulin hasn't to date uh, lived up to the expectations. It seemed in theory to be a good way of uh, delivering insulin, removing the need for an injection and therefore the possibility of more frequent administration, much like the body used to do with insulin before somebody uh, developed diabetes. But as I mentioned, the effectiveness and the uptake of uh, this form of therapy 
has not been what we expected. And all these medications you mentioned, they all go better with exercise, right? Getting your patients to do some form of it, moderate or mild exercise is important. None of these therapies are entirely effective without some attention to the diet, some attention to physical activity within the, the limits of the person's uh, capability. And that may be aerobic exercise or it may be resistance training and exercise for those who are unable to undertake aerobic exercise. But some form of increase in physical activity does help with controlling glucose. Well, we're just about out of time. I have one more question, and that's for our listeners who may not see all diabetic patients or they're not well-skilled in endocrinology, but they need more information to manage these patients. Where can they go for more information? Well, there are a number of websites. The International Diabetes Federation's website is www.idf.org. Also, the American Diabetes Association website has a lot of information which your listeners could access. Dr. Cola, Jerry, thank you for being my guest today. It was my pleasure. Today we've been discussing diabetes and is managing the glucose in your patients enough. Also, we've been talking about some new therapies. My guest today has been Dr. Stephen Cola, Jerry from the University of Sydney in Australia, and I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions on this or any segment, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. We want to hear from you, and thank you for listening.